And there's also a bit of an ivory tower feeling when it comes to PhD. Like you're, you're just up in that tower, mm. sneering down on the unwashed, Is that uneducated. You? Me? <laughs> uh, no. The only thing, I guess what I enjoy most about my PhD is that when I make uh, restaurant reservations, I have the option of clicking the drop-down menu next to my name, right? From Mr. I can change it to Dr. Mm. And I don't think it has affected any of my restaurant experiences so far, but it's kind of nice when they call like, hey, uh, you know, Dr. Tan, here's your table. And I'm like, yeah. You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Welcome to the BFF Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Junus. Our conversation today looks to delve deeper into the question of whether further education makes financial sense. Today, we have Jackie Tan on the show to talk about this with us. I really wanted to get him on the show as Jackie is one of the highest achievers I know in his age category. On top of selling his first company under the age of 30, he's also completed his PhD and is a Forbes 30 under 30 personality. And even today, Jackie's startup, UpLevel, is also focused on upskilling. Welcome to BFF, Jackie. It's great to have you on the show. Hello, Jonas. Thanks for having me on this podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, thank you for being here. And clearly, you are the poster child for high achievers. I, I think every Asian parent, um, I, I don't think I would be something that Asian parents would want their kids to emulate. Um, mm. Growing up, I did pretty badly in school, actually. One of the things that I was pretty bad at is memorization, mm. which is kind of funny because eventually I I started off from physics and chemistry and eventually in university, I picked up biology. I did my undergraduate studies in NUS, uh, in life sciences. Mm. And in life sciences, you had to memorize a lot of things. I did so badly at memorization and tests uh, at some point in my third year or fourth year, uh, my peers in life sciences, they, they were like, ah, Jackie, thank you for being at the bottom of the bell curve for us so we can get the A. I didn't quite mind, of course. Uh, apart from the memorization, I enjoyed the experiments that I performed in, in life sciences. So I spent a lot of time in labs with hands-on experience, practically. Mm. So while my friends were out there cramming textbooks and lecture notes in their minds, I was in the lab performing experiments and, you know, Enjoying the process. Mm. Yep. And tell us about what made you pursue like your PhD beyond NUS. So without revealing too much of my, my age, okay, I'm over 30 right now. Um, I, I finished my undergraduate studies in 2012 and I had student loans to clear. So I spent three years working as a research assistant in various places. Um, and in 2015, I decided to further my studies. Why I decided to go into it is uh, because back then I I enjoy I still do I still enjoy my experiments uh, even though I no longer do it I still think about them fondly. Mm. Uh, I just and I thought okay since I'm already spending so many years doing research might as well take it one step further and get a PhD out of it. Otherwise mm. I'll be a research uh, assistant for a very long time. 
Mm, okay. Tell us a little bit more about how you started Fund My Life. I would consider myself an accidental entrepreneur. Towards the beginning of my PhD, I saw how my collaborators from other labs who were doing uh, just... Well, back then, it wasn't called data science. It was called bioinformatics. So the... The branch of uh, data science and biology, right, more specifically in the field of understanding genomic data, for example, that, that's called bioinformatics. So I was quite envious about how my bioinformaticians um, were just sitting down, right, and analyzing data all day and mm. coming up with insights that could be published. Yeah. Uh, myself, I was quite envious and I wanted to be like that. So I spent a year picking up uh, Python and R in hopes that I could uh, do the same. Um, I did that, and coincidentally, I started my PhD. But I realized that, you know, all my life I've been applying what I learned and, you know, with hands-on projects and whatnot. And I told myself, okay, uh, time to apply what I learned, which is, you know, Python R. I was also picking up Android and um, iOS programming back then. And I thought, okay, why not just join hackathons and challenges? Um, around the same time, I started taking part in data science challenges um, in my first year of PhD, and I quite enjoyed it, right? And eventually, I started Find My Life because there was a hackathon that I took part at the end of 2015. It was a hackathon, and the theme was around finances, personal finances. Mm. I thought, okay, cool. And I, I got my eventual co-founder, right, who was my friend from NUS, right, to do it with me. And back then, he too was doing his PhD, right, but you know, in a different lab, on a different, entirely different topic altogether. Mm. Um, after the hackathon, we back then the, the idea was actually just a financial calculator. Mm -hmm. So that was Fun My Life. The reason why Fun My Life was called Fun My Life was because during the hackathon, um, it was a two-day hackathon, right? And after the first day, we haven't get a good name or rather we, we, we weren't inspired to come up with a good name. And at, I remember it was maybe 2 a.m. and I told myself FML, right? <laughs> Mm. And I quite liked the I quite liked the acronym, so I worked backwards and replaced certain letters in that in the acronym, and that's why it became Fund My Life. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So it started there. We sat on it until the beginning of 2016 when we thought, okay, we're both so bored and not bored per se, but we we needed something right to do while we were doing our PhD, and that's how we started FML in mm. 2016. So onto the topic of, you know, like upskilling and lifelong learning. So while we know that, you know, lifelong learning and upskilling is important and it's one of those um, messages that's being um, put on us like again and again. The question is, is it possible to have and spend too much on education, right? So if we look at what it is today, clearly a university degree today is not much of a differentiator. And also, you know, we've seen the not so recent trend of being an Ivy League drop out. That's a lot sexier than somebody who has actually gone through everything, right? And in 2016, an Economist article also concluded that a PhD may actually offer no financial benefit over a master's degree and could, in fact, reduce earnings. So, I mean, a lot of this is US data. So I wanted to get your sense from somebody who has actually been there, done that. What's your take on it? Well, okay. This is quite a few things to unpack. So I'm just going to address them point by point, right? 
I guess with regards to the question on whether a university degree is whether it's a differentiator in the job market, um, it's a bit tricky because when we talk about university degree, there's uh, we have private universities versus publicly funded universities. Uh, we have majors within different kinds of majors. We have STEM majors, we have the humanities, mm. and even a medical degree. Mm. So it really depends. I mean, it sounds a bit cliched. Generally speaking, statistically speaking, you'd be at a better position if you secure a job after university education. Mm. I think that's, um, again, statistics, right? As for the econ- the 2016 Economist article, right, about whether a PhD may offer no more financial benefit over a master's degree, Yes or no? Because if you think about it, a PhD can last anywhere between four years all the way to seven years. Mm. Um, in the Singaporean context, if you stay for a certain amount of time, you have no choice but to be let go. Um, let go with a degree. So that's good, right? On the other hand, master's degree can last anywhere between one to two years, two years maximum. So even if, if you look at it from even an opportunity cost standpoint, someone with a master's degree uh, may end up with a job a lot earlier than someone with a PhD. Hmm. Typically, someone who goes for a PhD might have a career in academia in mind, meaning the usual route of doing a PhD, say for example, in my field, biology. Someone would go through, say, four years to seven years of biology PhD, go overseas to at least two different labs in two different countries under... well different fields and from then on it's quite a lot of uncertainty because after your second postdoctorate uh, stint you either end up with a position in wherever you want to be or you end up uh, in what you call a postdoc hell mm. postdoc hell is a situation where you rotate from lab to lab without ever finding a job in a university as a professor now mm. that is hell um, so that that's what people gun for when they go for a PhD in STEM. The lucky ones see the light much earlier, leave academia and end up in well-paying jobs, which is great, mm. right? So, okay, again, I guess it depends, right? I'm such, you know, it sounds like I'm on the fence and you know what they say about people on the fence, right? They, they get their butts poked. <laughs> <laughs> if you sit on the fence, you get your ass poked. Mm. But that's... um. Again, it, it's it's tricky. Now, um, with regards to dropouts being sexier, I guess that statement probably can can use a bit of a qualification. Ivy League dropouts who succeed are sexier, right? <laughs> if you're a dropout and you don't succeed, no one really cares. It's on hindsight, right? <laughs> yep. I think you're right, uh, especially when it comes to field of study, right? Because even for the recent survey where they looked at film program graduates from Columbia University, where they actually took out student loans with a median debt of $181,000. And after two years of earning their master's degree, half of these borrowers were actually making less than 30000 a year. So that's a very good example of when it actually doesn't make financial sense, I mean, barring all the other things of like intellectual inquiry, wanting to do film, from a financial perspective, it doesn't make sense. And especially, you know, it can be very debilitating if someone is actually hoping that that master's degree would actually provide that financial return on investment. So um, given that we're talking about field of study, right, and also onto the great work that you're doing with Uplevel to help people upskill, in your opinion, what are the highest financial Return on investment skills that 
a person should pick up. I think research featured by Financial Times in 2019 said that by 2030, 400,000 full-time jobs in capital markets, such as asset management, brokerage and investment banking, would be replaced by tech and AI. And especially if these roles largely revolve around calculations, this can be, you know, as you know, it can be done much faster and more accurately by machines. And even in 2019, two years ago, you know, just before COVID, 35% of jobs posted by the US and European banks were for tech and data roles. And apparently... In 2030, they're estimating another 66,000 jobs in tech and data science, and I guess this is largely in the U.S. market. And Heidi Pickett, who is assistant dean at MIT, actually went further to say this, right, that computer programming is a must-have. You know, she said, don't bother putting PowerPoint or Excel on your resume. Financial institutions are looking for R, Python, and another programming language, which is exactly what you did a few years ago, you know, prior to doing your PhD. And this actually fits really well into what you're doing with Uplevel. It does, it does. I guess right now is a good time to be in either programming, data analytics, or data science. However, when you are on the ground, uh, you will hear two different voices, right? First crowd would say, hey, I've gone into upskilling myself. I've taken short courses. I might have even gone through a master's program in data science or analytics. Or I might have even gone through, say, a boot camp by General Assembly or the Mm. Wagon or a few other schools that are popping up everywhere like mushrooms nowadays. I can't get a job. Basically, it's it's a very frustrated group of people because, you know, after hearing, um, well, I wouldn't say promises, but trends and, and, and the hype and um, a lot of all this encouraging news, they jump into it only to find that they are not, you know, employable. Mm. It's a bit sad. Uh, on the other hand, you, ha- you hear companies in general, in press releases, you see it in job postings. They, meaning these companies, would say, hey, uh, we, we have a huge shortage of data scientists, analysts, and whatnot. Mm. How do you reconcile these two together? Uh, you have, on one hand, people who are seemingly skilled in data science and analytics and programming. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have uh, companies which are which hunger for additional people, right? And yet, these positions are not being filled. What's going on? Mm. I guess this can be explained by the fact that companies are not just looking for data scientists and analysts. What they're looking for are people who are good at data science and data analytics. It's a huge difference. Mm. Um, What does that imply? It implies that the folks who, I wouldn't say jump on the trend, but who go through the process of upskilling themselves still need, there's room for improvement on their part. And that is hands-on experience in Mm. projects um, that best mimics what companies are looking for. This Mm. is why Uplevel exists. We, we design projects, we help learners to get hands-on experience so that, you know, to build a portfolio, right? And so that they can go up to companies and say, hey, I've done such work before. And uh, not only that, they'd be sufficiently experienced to tackle technical assessments, things mm-hmm. that are not covered during their course of studies. Uh, again, I think what education is good at is equipping a large group of people with maybe 80% of what the market needs. Mm. What if the market needs actually someone with 90%? Where does the 10% come from? That 10% could be even thinking algorithmically, something that it's very hard to cover in the classroom. 
problem-solving skills, um, independent problem-solving that only comes when you have sufficient experience with projects. Mm. These things are not available or usually usually not available in a classroom setting. And uh, we, meaning up-level, we think that there is opportunity in filling that remaining 10 to 20% gap in, in skills. I think that's interesting that you say 10 to 20%, whereas 80% of it can be learned in the classroom because my personal take on, you know, what can be learned in the classroom. Like for me personally, I actually learned, for me coming from an equity research background or a financial analysis background, um, building up financial models from scratch, I think a lot of that was really learned on the job compared to, you know, what I learned in lectures. So is it different for programming where actually 80% of it can be learned in the classroom? I, I say 80 because it's a nice number, right? But it can be anywhere between 60, even 50 to 70%. The conditions one goes through in, say, a day-to-day, right, in a job, it's vastly different from what one experiences in the classroom. And I think that's almost, well, I guess that's the same just about with regular education anyways. Mm. But uh, what's different this time around is the expectation that these upscalers have mm. with regards to the job. Right. So in a way, they don't know what they don't know mm. in the companies. And it's only through being in that company that they learn the remaining things that they have to pick up. Like how do you work in a team, effectively in a team, in a company, uh, best practices, for example, in, in data analytics and data science, um, the regular tools that you, you you use in a company that you wouldn't learn it outside of a classroom. Mm. So all these things, right, require you to be in the company first. You need to get a foot in the company before you can f- fill the gap, right? So mm. it, it's almost like a chicken and egg thing, right? To be employable to a company, you must acquire those skills in a company. But to learn those skills, you must be in a company first. <laughs> so it's a... It's a classic problem, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Because, I mean, when it comes to, I guess, you know, with regards to how companies are hiring, I think it's changed quite a bit. It's kind of moved a little bit from what they see on paper to what they know you can actually do in person, right? Which is the, you know, having access to like data or like actual problems that they're facing and having people work on it to some extent, right? It's not just about looking at the resume and asking questions and, you know, giving them a little bit of a technical interview and that will be it. But actually having them more involved in the process before making that decision. Yeah, uh, we are seeing a lot more interesting models emerging um, that allows companies to tap into this group of individuals uh, who may not be suitable in, say, the usual recruitment process, right? Um, someone applies, gets the resume scanned. And the thing is, when you when you scan resumes at scale, you're going to end up picking out the best and not the ones who might be diamonds in the rough. Mm. Um, so new emerging models that companies are trying out are, for example, uh, hackathons. Mm. So in the recent years, I've seen companies organizing hackathons as a form of recruitment. And I would say that is beneficial to folks who do not fit the usual mold of what companies are looking for in the data analysts or scientists. Mm. So if you go through the usual recruitment route, so you look at the job postings, right? Usually they need someone with master, someone with PhD. That's tough. Um, Statistically speaking, you only get, say, less than 50 PhD graduates per year from all of the universities in Singapore. Mm. And we're looking at, what, thousands of vacancies? How are we going to fill that? For masters, same thing. At best, we're looking at anywhere between 500 to 1,000 optimistically per year. Mm. 
So by having models of recruitment that's a bit different from the usual process, uh, we'd be able to get more candidates. And that's something that I'm optimistic for the future as small companies realize that, hey, hackathons are a great way to get more people and it's cheap as well. It's relatively cheaper to get someone through, say, a hiring hackathon than a usual headhunting process or even referrals. Uh, another thing that I'm optimistic about are government-funded programs, for example. I guess you're talking about Tech Careers, right? Uh, tech Careers, one yeah. Tech Careers is one. Tech Careers is a program uh, jointly organised by Nyam Poly and Tribe Academy. Full disclosure, I am helping out in, in the program where I have already taught a batch of students. The idea is that the students go through a few months of upskilling, meaning they start from scratch. So they learn coding from scratch all the way to a good competency where they are able to analyze data, right? And after that, sponsor companies take them on and uh, through an apprenticeship. And that's where they'll gain more hands-on experience and hopefully be part of, uh, of the company or the sponsor company. Mm. So that's the Tech Careers Program. So based on your role there, right, and I guess you, you've already coached a few batches of people and these are usually people who are coming from different industries, right? Mm. And they are coming into this and learning a new set of skills. Do you see any patterns when it comes from like, you know, are people from, let's say, a certain industry, are they better at, for example, like analytics or, you know, things related to logic compared to certain other industries? I think individuals who have strong pattern recognition abilities would tend to do way better in programming. I think that's the case for just about anything. Mm. Uh, pattern recognition, logic. If you have someone who thinks in very abstract terms and has a hard time grasping sequential thinking, mm. that person may have a harder time than someone who's a lot more, say, uh, systematic. Step one, step two, step three, so on and so forth. I think regardless, that's the kind of like how they see things, right? Another quality that I notice about learners who do eventually uh, succeed, I'd say independence is a huge factor, meaning whether he or she is able to independently acquire knowledge without the help of others, right? So for those who are not afraid to fail as well, that's another quality that's pretty uh, important, right? Mm. When it comes to upskilling. For, for background-wise, I don't think there's any pattern so far. But those three qualities that I mentioned definitely help the person succeed. Mm, okay. Then just sort of like circling back to just to close this off, right? So in essence, when we look at, you know, further education, I think further education is also changing a bit, right? Where people can do, you know, like full-time master's programs or PhD programs, or they can really do something on the side, like, you know, do something with you guys in terms of taking on data projects to work on. Do you see those two models merging? So when it comes to costing, right, mm. um, Masters is definitely a for-profit program. I say suppose someone pays for a few things. One is the skill, right, to acquire the skill. And even then, if you have the skill in the Masters, you acquire um, the Masters for a few reasons. One is for the privilege, right? Mm. Imagine getting a Masters from, say, somewhere like Harvard. Mm. Sounds good on your resume. Mm. You get a master's from NUS, NTU. Again, fantastic, right? Goes quite a long way. But more importantly, I guess, people are also taking up graduate programs, master's, PhD, uh, simply because, say, sometimes when the economy is bad, they just go back to school, right? Mm. That's, the, that's the common um, trend. You're also taking checkboxes. So, for example, 
say you want to do data science in Google, for example, yeah. they will never ever accept you unless you have either a master's or a PhD. Mm. So if you are conscious about what exactly you want to get out of a program, then by all means, go for it. Otherwise, you end up settled with that, which is horrible. PhDs are usually paid by either scholarship or some kind of foundation, or if you're lucky, you know, paid generally. The downside of a PhD is that firstly, it takes up a lot of time and there's a very high failure rate. I started off with 20 people in my batch, I believe, and at the end of it, less than half remained. Mm. It's very stressful. So those are the downsides of going for a PhD, right? The intent, um, the experience, and the outcome are entirely different from, let's say, if you go for a regular upskilling program meant for you to acquire a job, mm -hmm. go through it. It's a very practical and a very pragmatic um, perspective on mm. it. And you go through a program like Tech Careers, you know exactly what you're going to get out of it. At the end, boom, an apprenticeship. At the end, boom, a job. Mm. So whether these two will merge, I think it's quite unlikely. Um, and there's also a bit of an ivory tower feeling when it comes to PhD. Like you're, you're just up in that tower, mm. sneering down on the unwashed, Is that uneducated. You? Me? <laughs> uh, no. The only thing, I guess what I enjoy most about my PhD is that when I make uh, restaurant reservations, I have the option of clicking the drop-down menu next to my name, right? From Mr. I can change it to Doctor. Mm. And I don't think it has affected any of my restaurant experiences so far, but it's kind of nice when they call like, hey, uh, you know, Dr. Tan, here's your table. And I'm like, yeah! But is that as far as it goes or do you actually get something special? Uh, so suffering, infinite failure because, you know, experiments, maybe out of the 10 experiments I run, nine will fail. Uh, those kind of experiences you can't get from anywhere else in your life. That mm. kind of repeated failing builds a resilience that only a horrible life can offer, right? If you're a middle class, comfortable, uh, you are most unlikely going to experience that kind of pain. Mm. Um, I say pain in the most constructive sense because my biggest takeaway from my PhD studies is the fact that, um, that I've experienced failure regularly. So nothing really phases me anymore, actually. Wait, like, do you start off as a very... I mean, I've always known you as a fairly calm person, right? So were you different before? Um, I've always been calm. And after going through my PhD, I've gone even calmer. Um, another thing that I benefited from this is having a very large amount of time to just acquire knowledge and synthesize them. Uh, it's, it sounds a bit abstract, but combining multiple sources of information, right, and, and understanding them as a whole and coming up with new knowledge, that's one of the privileges of being in a PhD program. Mm. Um, in a shorter term, so for example, if you're in a master's program, you have an opportunity to do so, but not, not for four years, right? That again is a kind of skill that can only be nurtured over a long period of time. So that's something that I benefited. Um, well, lastly, is that, that doctor title. <laughs> Like, doctor title is nice because I do dream of one day when I'm on the plane or when travel resumes. That's this dream, right? Um, someone gets a heart attack in first-class cabin. Air stewardess jumps into the economy and asks, is there a doctor around here? And we're like, yeah, I'm a doctor. I go up to the guy who's having a heart attack and I want to go like, haha, he's having a heart attack. And, you know, air stewardess might be saying, hey, do something about it. And I'm like, oh, I'm doctor, Dr. Tan, but not the kind of doctor you expect. we will get there but yeah so we wanted to end all this with a few like quick fire style questions first question is what is the most expensive thing you have bought that you regretted buying 
funnily enough, I haven't regretted any of my purchases because I don't really buy stuff. Um, my laptop, I've had it for seven years now. My phone, I've had it for six years and I've only had to replace it recently because it the motherboard finally gave out. I I didn't want to get a new phone. I went to a repair shop. I asked, you know, hey, hey, can you help my phone? And they said the motherboard's fried. I can't do anything. And that's only when I decided to buy a phone. Yeah. So the second question is, what is the most expensive thing that you thought was really worth it? I would say it would be my... Okay, it's not expensive in the monetary sense, but expensive in the time and opportunity cost sense. I would still point to my PhD as the most expensive thing I've ever spent my time and effort and life on. Hmm. Yeah, it's a bit intangible. Okay, third question. What is the lowest amount of money you've seen in your bank after the age of 21? Oh, that's an easy one. That was during my undergraduate days. Yeah, I only had $20 in my account. Um, I was giving tuition back then. Uh, the money hasn't hit. <clears throat> okay, so there was someone spending the night. Uh, I woke up and I was like, shit, gotta buy breakfast. I went <laughs> and realized I only had 20 So I spent more than half of it on McDonald's meal, leaving only $6 in my account. Hmm. Uh, uh, that was that was quite thrilling, right? Mm. So we both had breakfast and, you know, yeah, that's the lowest I've ever had, $6. Hmm. Okay. And the last one, uh, would you live your life differently if you had $10 million in the bank today? Not really, actually. Uh, okay, wait. If I had $10 million in my account, I would probably take one year off to take a break, catch up on all the movies, shows, anime, manga, games, everything that I've um, missed out on. If I were to go with, like, if I wanted to play a game every single day, right, in that year of rest, yeah, I would have the opportunity to play around, like, 1,200 games in the year. I've already calculated. It's great, right? So, eight, eight hours of sleep, I'm still getting my full hours of rest. 18 hours a day, subtract two hours from it uh, for, like, you know, meals and maybe washing up, maybe, right? Optional. It's fine. So, 16 hours, play game every day for the rest of the year. Boom. Hmm. Then after that, I would just live life quite normally. That 10 mil, yeah, just maybe buy a house in Orchard or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Because after you do that one one year of literally spending two-thirds of your day gaming, yep. I'm assuming not even an hour eating and showering, maybe like five minutes per meal, yep. 10 minutes shower, you're going to be actually quite an interesting case study, right? And actually maybe like the new the new hero for actually a lot of guys out there because you might be living out their ideal lifestyle. The king of needs. Yeah, yeah. the king of needs. S my, stream my life. Yeah. Would your PhD professors be proud of you for that? I'm just wondering. I, I don't think so. I think I disappointed my supervisor uh, simply because when I was running my first startup, I did it during my PhD. So I would do research in a day and my startup stuff in the evening. And he, he always attributed my lack of productivity. I was working very hard, but I think my supervisor thought I could work even harder mm. <laughs> to my startup life. So I eventually, you know, I didn't continue academia and I think that kind of broke his heart. Mm. But, you know, what to do? Well, it's okay. I think, it, you know, like me, 10 years down, you guys can always catch up and you realize that he was actually proud of you all this time. <gasps> Just like an Asian parent. Yeah, I know. 
And with that, we have come to the end of the episode. I think it was a really good time chatting with Jackie on, you know, the financial return of furthering your education and all the things to look out for if one were to upskill. So thank you for taking your time to come on to the BFF podcast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And if you're interested, you can check out Jackie's work on Uplevel. So maybe you can drop the URL. Yeah, sure thing. So it's dataprojects.uplevel.work. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcasts at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on MeListen or Apple Podcast, or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time. <laughs>